Christ Church, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98, Psalm 98, uh, as we unpack this uh, wonderful psalm that commands us to sing and be a rejoicing people. Let us stand to hear God's word. Please stand, Psalm 98, uh, beginning in verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God created us and redeemed us to be a rejoicing and singing people, a people exuding wonder and praise in song. We sing in response to the marvelous, even extravagant things that our blessed God has done and has done for us. How can we not sing in earnest to the great God of grace, the one who has spared nothing to save us and to make us his own? Singing praise and singing thanksgiving and even lament to God is at the very heart of true Christian experience and expression. Singing is at the heart of worship. Christians sing. It's what we do. Angels in heaven sing. Creation sings. The Bible is filled with references to music and to song. Indeed, the Bible refers to music and singing over 700 times. It is filled with commands to lift our voices in praise and to give God glory through music and singing. It's what we were created to do. It's what we have been redeemed to do, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. Singing is an audible expression of our unity in Christ and the gospel. Singing brings us together, binding our hearts as one in Christ our King. There is something, I would dare to say, even mystical about the singing of God's word in the midst of the congregation. It's like when you get to verse four or five or six or seven of a psalm, especially especially one that expresses doubts and struggles and yet the response of 
This is due to, like Psalm 77 that we just sang, uh, that, that, that you have there this expression of doubt and discouragement, and then the response of, this is due to my own weakness and limitation. God is faithful. He is good. And you, you sing through that as a congregation, and there's something very glorious and mysterious about that. Anything lift the soul and renew the heart like congregational singing. Sometimes it may be hard to, to get back for evening worship. And then there is the opening hymn or psalm. And we realize there and then that we were glad we made the trip. We were glad that we are in the midst of God's singing people. In our text for this evening, the psalmist exhorts us to sing to the Lord a new song, to make a joyful noise to the Lord and to break forth to break forth into joyous song and sing praises, exclamation points everywhere. Christ Church, we are called to be a singing people, a rejoicing people, a thankful people in all circumstances and in every season of life, from the youngest child to the oldest saint. We are called to sing praise to the Lord and to encourage and build up one another through our singing. The singing of children is such an encouragement to the adults. The singing of adults is an encouragement to our children, although they might not always recognize that. It's a great encouragement. It's a great encouragement for children to hear their fathers singing out to the Lord. It's a great encouragement to to, uh, the children to hear this singing and for the parents to hear their children singing and for the congregation to hear one another singing. Singing, It builds us up. It strengthens our, our faith. And yet some Christians are not convinced of these things. Some barely open their mouths during the singing, if at all, uh, choosing rather to be silent before God than to rejoice in his presence. Over the years, I've visited congregations where the singing was Abysmal, where the singing was abysmal, not too many notches above a whisper. You know, I have friends who labor in gospel ministry in China, and I don't know if you know this, but when Christians gather together in secret to worship God, they do not sing above a whisper, not because they don't want to rejoice and sing out and sing loudly, but because if neighbors heard them singing Christian psalms and hymns, they would be reported to the authorities. And whoever is leading that group will be arrested and put in jail. And yet they gather, and yet they sing, even though it is at a whisper. But when we have the privilege and the freedom, which we may not always have, to sing out, to sing praise to the Lord, ought we not uh, to do so? Uh, You may think, well, pastor, you know, I kind of sound like a foghorn when I sing. I'm not sure if the congregation would be encouraged by me. Well, here's the thing. We are called to make a joyful noise, even if that noise shouldn't be recorded and put on Spotify. I remember in a former church, this wonderful, wonderful godly man who could pray down heaven during the prayer meeting. 
he sang in a way that was similar to a foghorn on a on a on a uh, a foggy uh, night in Charleston, hearing them out in the harbor. But it was so wonderful, so wonderful to hear him raise his voice in song, knowing that he was singing praise uh, to the Lord. I've actually wondered when people do not sing, whether they actually believe the truth that we are singing. Do they really believe that Christ the King gave his life as a substitute for his sinful subjects? Do they really believe that Jesus rose from the dead to rescue them from the depths of hell? Should we not have a song of praise and gratitude in our hearts to our great and merciful God? An early church father wrote that, quote, the awesome and terrifying God of the law becomes a gentle shepherding God who invites and commands us to sing to him joyful praise. Douglas Bond, uh, in his book on music, singing, and worship, states that, quote, Christians of all people ought supremely to care about music and about singing. Next to the preaching of the word of God, singing, seen throughout the pages of God's word, is central to Christian worship. God speaks to us in his word, and we respond to his voice with our own voices in singing. The Lord is pleased to hear the singing of his People, What a privilege. What a privilege singing is. The singing of God's truth. The singing of the Psalms. The singing of hymns that are informed by wonderful theology, true doctrine. What a privilege and what a means of grace in our lives, which I pray uh, we will understand better as we walk through Psalm 98 this evening. And consider some important truth and principles tonight. We're going to consider some important truth and principles for music and singing in the worship of the church. Of course, uh, these matters are not without controversy. Uh, when people talk about the worship wars, really they're talking about music. It really is about music primarily. Christians are often divided between contemporaneity, that is, whatever is new must be best, and traditionalism, which is the idea that if anything new is new, it shouldn't be sung, period. Now, these things are, these polarized positions are certainly there, uh, but they're not always helpful uh, in the discussion uh, of these matters. But one thing that most thoughtful Christians agree upon is that music and singing in the modern evangelical church has been profoundly influenced by the world. Rather than view music and singing through the lenses of Scripture, the church often views it through the lenses of the culture. In other words, let's mimic the culture with our music, slap some sort of Christian words on it, and actually present ourselves in such a way so that if someone walked in, that they would feel very comfortable even as they did in the nightclub the night before. And we, we understand and we even appreciate the desire for many to want to uh, appeal to unbelievers and to to, to gather them inside the church so that then they can uh, preach the gospel to them. But, and we won't have time to go into it all this evening, when we understand the worship of the church as a meeting between God and his people, 
and where God disciples his people and matures his people and where the gospel is preached and where the people of God hear the gospel and believe in the gospel and rest in the gospel. And there is also a doxological, rather a, an evangelistic um, aspect to this, what, what we call doxological evangelism, that when believers come into the worship of God, they hear God's people singing, they see God's people listening, they hear the word of God preached, and we pray that they one day will believe. But the worship service isn't designed for them. We don't design the worship service to appeal to someone who is coming in and would rather have a nightclub than a church. We believe the best thing for them is actually to hear the word of God read and preached, to hear faithful prayers like we heard this evening in a pastoral prayer from Pastor Michael, where we come to the table, where we do that which God has called us to do in his, in his word. This, this uh, is important as it concerns the music and singing of the church. One writer states, quote, in the postmodern, post-Christian age in which we live, we should not be surprised that worship and worship music in evangelical churches have followed the path of our culture. Upon closer examination, one finds that our value system, musical and otherwise, reflects society's primary philosophy, namely pragmatism. Uh, it, it, it reflects the object of attention, namely ourselves, and occupation, our own amusement. You know, I often think about um, this afternoon, we were listening to some, some classical music uh, at the house, and uh, it's so beautiful, and we're thinking about how the culture, the pop culture, has largely rejected classical music, skilled music, played by skilled musicians. Um, uh, the, 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 the pop sort of approach to things, the superficial is what appeals to the masses. And you have symphonies and orchestras and musicians struggling to survive because there's not an appreciation for what is actually, what is actually skillful, beautiful music that cultivates in your heart peace, emotion, all these things that we would uh, so appreciate about classical music uh, that is lost in our current day of sensual pop music, which is, of course, the music for the masses. Psalm 98 calls us to something different than this kind of uh, pop culture come into the church. It calls us to something more reverent, something more regal and God-centered, something fit for a king. As a pastor's wife once told me when I was over uh, for dinner at their house with their family, she said, Pastor, you were teaching on worship this morning. You know, I like to say that in our church, we have throne room worship, not backyard worship. In other words, we approach a king in public worship, and our worship should reflect that. When we're out back in the picnic, it's fun, it's great, it's informal, but that's not the setting in which you would be invited if you were to go meet the king in his castle, for instance. We approach God who is a great and sovereign king. In fact, Psalm 98 has been referred to often as a cantante domino, that is a song of the Lord, or a song to the Lord, rather. As one writer put it, James Montgomery Boyce, it's a coronation hymn fit for a king. 
coronation hymn, Fit for a King. Let's take a few minutes to unpack this psalm, Fit for a King, and consider some important biblical principles as it concerns music and singing in the worship of the church. The first point is the mandate to sing praise to God. The mandate to sing praise to God. So let's begin with the context of this psalm. On what occasion was this psalm penned? Well, most believe it was written during the post-exilic days of Israel. That is, after the Jews had returned from Babylonian captivity. God had rescued his covenant people out of captivity and brought them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and also to rebuild the temple in the holy city. It's a victory psalm. It's evidence it's a victory psalm when we read it and we sing it. It's a psalm written to be sung by God's people in corporate worship. It's a psalm that rejoices in their present circumstances and also reflects upon God's future and visible reign over the earth. The psalm is forward-looking. It's forward-looking. It's joyfully anticipating the day when the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a psalm full of hope and and joy and faith-filled anticipation. Interestingly, Isaac Watts' wonderful 18th century hymn, Joy to the World, is a paraphrase of Psalm 98. Also, another hymn that we sing in this church called New Songs of Celebration Render by Eric Routley is also a paraphrase of Psalm 98 set to music. Perhaps you knew that Psalm 98 has many parallels with Mary's song, the Magnificat, in Luke's opening chapter. The Virgin Mary must have had Psalm 98 in her mind, in fact, when she sang God's praise after hearing Elizabeth's word of blessing. Psalm 98 was a very important one in the life of Israel. What I want us to notice in our first point from Psalm 98 is a simple one. We are commanded... Dear Christian, you are commanded to sing praise to the Lord. You are commanded to sing unto the Lord. Notice it does not suggest that we do so or that we have the option of doing so. Boys and girls, boys and girls, you are called to sing praise to the Lord. You are commanded to sing praise to the Lord. To the Lord, God requires his people to sing, not as a harsh taskmaster, but as a loving father, but as a loving father who knows his people's deepest needs. And our deepest need is him. Our deepest need is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we sing, we express our profound need of him. And we are reminded through the words that we sing of God's unbreakable loyalty and love towards us. You see, when we sing Scripture, when we sing the Psalms, when we sing uh, Bible-informed hymns, not only are we giving praise to God, but God's Word is being uh, lodged in our hearts as we sing. That's why we teach our children to sing these wonderful hymns and psalms. We don't want them to be lost uh, on the church because they're so rich in content as we sing God's Word. For these and other reasons, God commands us to sing. It's like the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Sabbath was made for us, that it would be a blessing, that on this day we would rest in the Lord and and focus on him. He's given us this day, and so he commands this day, 
It is a gift and a command, even as it is to sing unto the Lord. Look with me again at Psalm 98, verse 1. Verse 1 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, break forth into joyous song, and sing praises. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, a stringed instrument used in ancient Greece. That's what a lyre is. Verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who dwell in it. Over and over again, God's people are commanded to joyfully sing to the Lord. These are not just old covenant commands either. The apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 16 and 17 writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There is a, a uh, didactic teaching aspect to the singing of God's people. We are building each other up through our singing, and we are instructing each other as we are singing. As the con- How many times has it happened to you when a congregation is singing God's praise, you're singing, and you're listening to the people around you, and you're being ministered to by the promises that are being sung? This is what it is for. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, including singing, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So singing is both vertical and horizontal in its aim. It glorifies God and it ministers to God's people. And so church attendance is not just for you. It is for the people of God on many different levels, on many different levels. When you attend church, it's not just for you, it's for God's people that you are there singing, participating, listening, confessing uh, the faith in the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Hallelujah Catechism, and then, of course, fellowship uh, in the body. We are commanded to sing, not just when our life circumstances are comfortable and trouble-free. Paul and Silas model this for us in Acts chapter 16. You remember Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 25? It states there, The crowd joined in attacking them, that is, Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave order, orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, think of yourself in their, in their shoes. You've just been wrongly tried and arrested. You've been beaten, and you've been put in the inner prison, and shackles are on your feet. What do you feel like doing? Hey, let's sing. Let's sing a hymn. I mean, you can imagine, you know, in some circumstances, one person saying that and the other guy going, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? I don't know who suggested it or who started, but Paul and Silas began to sing. In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God. And then it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Who are these guys? Who are these people? 
who have gone through this injustice and suffering and yet still raise their voices in praise. It's what our neighbors ask when they know trouble has come to our home and yet there they are again getting in their car and going to church to give God's praise even though they have this terrible situation happening. Oh, how it ministers to those who look on, to those who listen. I always rejoice in the singing of this church because the singing is it's abundant, it's rich, it's loud, could be louder, always could be louder, but it's rich and it's full. And I'm reminded of that from time to time when I'm in another congregation and the singing is not quite as robust, although the churches we've been visiting lately on vacation, the singing has been wonderful because the same gospel is being preached in those churches with zeal. And when the gospel is being preached, typically you'll have congregations that lift their voice in song. Can't tell you how meaningful it has been for me over the years to watch God's people sing in the midst of fiery trials. You know, anybody can complain, but not everyone will sing and rejoice in the Lord in the midst of fiery trials. The great perspective we have up here as preachers during congregational singing. I often will see people wiping tears from their eyes, weeping over their hymnals, sometimes unable to sing verses of the hymn because they're overwhelmed with God's truth in the midst of their challenges. And what an encouragement it is to all of us to see that praise unto God. We are commanded to sing, but what should we sing? What should we sing? Well, the most obvious answer to that question, the one that seems to be missed by most of evangelicalism, is we are commanded to sing the Psalms. We're called to sing the Psalms. God commands us to sing the Psalms. We've already seen the scripture in Colossians 3. We also have Ephesians 5.19. Secondly, the Psalms are God's inspired songbook. The Psalms were written and designed to be sung by God's people. They are conspicuously set in the middle of our Bible. And please hear this. Before the 18th century, every Christian in every part of the world, for the first 18 centuries of the Christian church sang the Psalms in public worship. Hymns really didn't come to uh, be a, a major factor in the worship of the church until uh, the mid-18th century. And of course, it grew uh, very much so in the 19th century. Psalms have always been at the center of the worship of the church. These days, it has been lacking in our day, it's difficult to find churches that sing the psalms at all, except for bits and pieces of psalms, mostly celebratory sections of psalms. Psalms, thirdly, teach us how to approach God in prayer and in song. The language is exalted, the language is reverent, it's honest, and it's fit for a king. And it's God's word. It's God's word. Fourthly, psalms express every part of our human emotions and experience in this valley of tears. Several years ago, Carl Truman wrote a wonderful article on the Psalms entitled, on Psalm singing in particular, entitled, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? 
What do miserable Christians sing? He contrasted the almost always celebratory and superficial praise choruses of the modern day church with the reality of the suffering that we go through in this life at one time or another because life is hard. We get cut by the many thorns in the wilderness. Pilgrims, we make our way to the promised land. We don't want to sing catchy, superficial choruses after a 9-11 attack or after a family member dies, or even in the midst of the pressures and difficulties and struggles and weightiness of this life. We long for depth in those moments, moments which are regular. We think about our lives. These words help us to express our deep emotion and pain and doubts and struggles. The Psalms help us to do that. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love what John Calvin says in his introduction to the commentary in the book of Psalms. He says this, quote, I have been accustomed to call this book, that is the Psalms, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. End quote. Some may come to Christ Church and think it's rather odd that we sing metrical psalms. You'll notice the first half of our Psalter hymnal are metrical psalms. Some of those psalms have, have uh, different versions um, of those psalms. But really, should it be thought strange that we sing metrical psalms? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Psalm singing should be a staple and non-negotiable part of Christian worship wherever Christian worship takes place. Psalms are God's word to us, and they minister to us as we echo back to our faithful God, his inspired revelation. Why would we ever want to exchange the rich theology and inspired spiritual expression of the Psalms for trite praise choruses? Those praise choruses may be wonderful for a Sunday school class or wonderful for family worship from time to time, but in the corporate worship of the church, do we really want to replace the Psalms with those choruses? Because when you choose one thing to sing, you are not choosing the other. I remember when I heard Terry Johnson, a friend of mine and a minister down in Savannah, Georgia, who's done a lot of writing on psalm singing. He gave a lecture on psalm singing down at the Twin Lakes Fellowship, which is a fellowship of ministers in south of Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, oftentimes, after I'd hear Terry Johnson give a lecture, I wanted to put on sackcloth and throw myself in the ashes and say, oh my goodness, why haven't I been doing this? Lord, forgive me. Church, forgive me. I would come back often from Twin Lakes after Terry Johnson gave a lecture on, for instance, uh, the pastoral prayer or the reading of scripture or uh, the singing of psalms. And I would say, oh, we got to change the liturgy. We got to change it. We got to add these things. But I remember as he shared about this, I thought, why aren't we doing this? And so we've been doing it ever since. And it's been a deep encouragement to my soul and to the souls of all who sing the Psalms. 
But what else should we be singing? We should be singing hymns. We should be singing hymns. Over the centuries, pastor theologians have been writing poetic verse for the worship of God, and skillful musicians have been putting that verse to music. They are called hymns, hymns that are written for congregational praise. A corpus of hymnody has been tried and tested over the last 1,500 years, and we would be remiss to ignore it and not to make use of it. The collection of hymns in our Psalter hymnal is a rich repository of praise composed by men and women throughout the ages the world over. It's an expression of the universal church, which reminds us that many have faithfully gone before us. Again, we don't want this so-called contemporaneity to rule our lives that the latest must be the greatest and we must throw out anything that's older than three weeks. No, we have been handed down a rich repository of hymns that we want to sing, that we want to sing and know that Christians 500 years ago were singing these hymns, or 200 years ago, or that our great-great-grandmother was singing this hymn, and so are we, and it is important. I'm always interested to hear sometimes uh, those who would, would go against hymnody uh, until Christmas, or until Easter. Let's sing the traditional hymns during Christmas and Easter, but otherwise, let's throw them out. Wow, really? Okay, well, let's talk about that. Another thing I often will bring up is how when you go to a college football game, they seem to be playing the same songs every single game. Every single game. We hear the fight song played not just once, but like 400 times. Yet people still will listen to it. They're happy with it. They're happy to hear it. And yet you sing a hymn once every three months. We're like, we're singing this again? Yeah, we're singing it again because it is one of the greatest hymns in the history of, of the church. Our hymns not only teach us sound theology, they instruct our children as they grow up in the church, and they remind us that the church has a rich and deep history. Well, how about the scope of our praise? How about the scope of our praise? That's the second thing we want to consider. God's praise in this psalm is not limited to Israel. Did you notice that? No, it extends outward and is expressed by the nations. And even creation itself is personified as an agent of praise and worship. Here we see the the true nature of God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham is made with Abraham and his offspring in Genesis 12, and it extends to all the people through the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 3 of this psalm, Psalm 98, Israel is commanded to sing praise to the Lord. It says in verse 3 that God has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. First, uh, and Second Kings and Chronicles, along with the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament, outline the unfaithfulness of God's people. They had forsaken God's word. They sought to be like the nations around them. They worshipped idols. They made wicked alliances with pagan nations. So God raised up a foreign nation, Babylon, to take them out, to expel them from the land. But God did not forget his people. No, God remembered his covenant with Israel to be a God to them and to their children after them. So he brought them back to the land. That's the setting of the psalm. 
commanding them to repent and renew the covenant with the Lord. That's what's meant in verse 3. God has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. But then notice in verses 4 through 6 that God says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, what? All the earth. All the earth, it extends outward. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre, and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. God's salvation promises for Israel are not meant to stay in Israel, just as the praises of Christ's church aren't meant to stay in Christ's church. They are meant to extend outward, and we ought to be jealous for the praise of God in the nations. We see this in Psalm 98. We see it in Psalm 67, where the psalmist said, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. For Christ's church, God's, the scope of God's praise extends to the nations, and there's nothing like hearing his praise in foreign tongues. I remember my first mission trip to Moscow, Russia hearing my brothers and sisters in Christ give praise to God. I remember they were singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness in Russian. And I sang it in English as they were singing in Russian. It was very moving. Very moving to hear Christians in India singing praise to God in Hindi and Tamil and Urdu. Glorious to hear our brothers and sisters in Christ singing God's praise with foreign accents, for instance, in the UK, or to hear hymns sung in French, hear the psalms sung in German. Glorious. When we sing praise unto the Lord, our hearts ought to long for the nations to do the same. It's our worship that fuels missions. as We hear the gospel proclaimed through word and sacrament and respond with praise. The scope of God's praise goes further than Israel and the nations. It extends to creation. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Creation was made to give glory to God. And so when we are here in one of the most beautiful parts of the world, uh, in the South Carolina low country, and we we see all the beauty around us, we ought to consider that this beauty, this glory of creation is giving praise to God. Creation itself in this psalm is personified as expressing praise to its maker. And this poetic imagery reminds us that the signature of God's goodness, power, wisdom, and love is written in the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the sea, and it was all created for God's glory. When he returns, there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will be manifest, and all that was cursed will be restored, and all that was wrong will be made right. Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98, again, joy to the world, captures this beautifully when he writes, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as what? The curse is found. When Christ returns, all will be made right, far as the curse is found. Psalm 98 teaches us that the scope of praise is not limited to Israel, but extends 
out to the nations and also in creation itself. That's the scope of praise. What are the reasons for God's people to give praise? Look at me again at verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has revealed his righteousness, that is, his saving righteousness that we learn about in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that righteousness that is a revealed saving righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's why we sing to God. He's done marvelous things. What are those marvelous things? Well, first of all, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence out of nothing. With a word, he made the mountains, deserts, oceans, and all that is in them. Out of nothing, he spoke into existence the unsearchable galaxies, all of the beauty and splendor of plant and animal life owe their existence and beauty to our blessed triune God. He has done marvelous things. Not only creation, it's redemption that fuels our praise. Remember the Exodus. We're reading through Exodus now in our evening services. Remember Exodus, God reaching down and delivering his people from the hand of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt, leveraging his creation by bringing plagues upon the Egyptians and setting his people free through the leadership of Moses. In this glorious Exodus event was the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord did it. God brought his people into the wilderness to worship him and to lead them to the promised land. But all of this was ultimately to point us to Christ. Christ was and is the greater Moses. He rescues us from hell, bondage under Satan. God's right hand and holy arm work salvation for us in Jesus. The one who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, perfectly conforming to God's law, and then, as we learned this morning, giving his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, bearing our sin guilt, shame, and judgment, taking upon himself the curse of God to reconcile us to God as the greater Joshua leading us into the promised land. That is why we sing. That's why we lift our voices in praise, because our God has done marvelous things. Our singing should be earnest and joyful in light of such a great salvation. John Calvin, again, the Genevan reformer, comments on these verses by stating, quote, the language of the psalmist amounts to a declaration that God would not save the world by means of an ordinary kind, but would come forth himself and show that he was the author of salvation in every respect so singular. He reasonably infers that mercy of such a wonderful and to us incomprehensible kind should be celebrated by no ordinary Measures of praise. Christ Church, our reasons for giving praise unto God are countless, but they are concentrated in the salvation he has accomplished for us in Christ, his beloved and eternal Son, who spared not his only Son, dear one, for you. He spared not his only Son for you. His Son was wrapped in your sin and my sin on the cross at Calvary, and he was nailed to that cross so that we could by faith be forgiven of our sins and wrapped in his righteousness. 
Doesn't that make you want to sing? Doesn't that make you want to lift up your voice? Sing. Oh, that the Lord will put a new song in our hearts. In Zephaniah 3, we learn something almost too wonderful to take in. There we see that our singing is meant to be fueled by the fact that God sings, and he sings over us in his love. You remember singing over your children? I'm sure many of you still do this. You sing over your children because you love and adore them. Your children are the apple of your eye. You sing over them in your love. God sings over us. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let, your hand, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet over you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings over his people. We love God because he first loved us. We sing to God because he first sings over us. Christ church, the Lord God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who saves. He quietly contemplates his love over you and also exalts over you with loud singing. This is why, united to Christ, we delight to sing praise to the Lord. And so we've considered the mandate of praise, the scope of praise, and the reasons for praise. Finally, Let's consider the biblical and confessional principles for praise. I believe that there is no greater satanic attack upon the modern evangelical church than the attack upon our worship. And in particular, as it concerns our music and singing, cultural savvy, trendiness, and entertainment value have taken precedence over reverence and biblical fidelity. And many, many choose their church home based on the way the music makes them feel. A lot of confusion. In many quarters, congregational singing has been replaced by a loud concert-like set of music where people are encouraged to sing along and where no one can hear anyone but the music and the singers on stage. In fact, it's common these days for churches to have their earplugs available for those who cannot take the volume of the music. The music of the church is not meant to whip God's people up into a frenzy or to have some kind of an emotional impact. Emotion may be the fruit of what we sing, but should not be that for which we plan for. 1988, I believe it was, I went to go see... Now, don't get jealous. Don't get jealous. I went to go see U2 in concert. Joshua Tree Tour. One of the greatest tours of all time. If you want to disagree with me, that's fine. I'll forgive you later. That was like a religious experience. It was not of God, okay? It was not of God. It wasn't biblical. It wasn't worship. But when the edge started playing where the streets have no name, 
and Bono ran on stage. And 80,000 fans cried out. And the music started. It, I, I was, I had, I'm getting goosebumps right now. It was an amazing experience. But it was not worship, biblically speaking. You see, you can have a band, you can have music, you can have lots of things happening around you. It doesn't mean it's biblical worship, even when you slap some religious words on it. It's important that we worship according to God's words and not according to our imaginations or pragmatic justifications. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, and that he is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will, naming the Bible, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. And so what is biblical worship? It is worship according to the word. We worship, John 4, in spirit and in truth. And so the content of our singing ought to be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that are informed and filled with the Word of God. And musical accompaniment for our singing ought to be that which is reverent and appropriate and assists the congregation in congregational song. Martin Luther, the father of congregational singing, once quipped, quote, I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people joyful. They forget thereby all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Unquote. Psalm 98 mentions stringed instruments, trumpets, and horns. Other instruments are mentioned in Scripture. These are regal instruments. Many instruments have been created over the centuries and are certainly appropriate for congregational singing. How do we measure the appropriateness of these instruments? Well, it's not easy. For one, the instruments and the way that they are played should not drown out the singing. Whether it's a loud praise band or a loud organ, the accompaniment should never overpower the congregation. We want to hear one another sing, as I mentioned earlier. Also, we need to remember that a lot of contemporary music is actually written for soloists. It's not written for congregational singing. And so when the person is up front and they're singing and they're doing all their variations in their voices and uh, too high, too low, and it's all over the place, and you're trying to follow along, really you're there to sing along with the person rather than to sing as a congregation. It's like a concert. And it's not congregational praise, biblically speaking. It's interesting that in the medieval times that the Christians didn't sing. You know, the Protestant Reformation brought back congregational singing. Before that, the choirs sang and the people listened. We have gone back 
to the medieval Roman Catholic way where the people sing and we just sort of listen or hum or, 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 or try to carry on. I was in a church several years ago with six or 700 people in the service and there was a band up front and they were very loud and it was definitely written for a soloist and it was like a concert and I looked around, I could not find one man that was singing entire congregation. I looked hard. Not one man was singing. They were all standing there with their mouth closed. Some were drinking their coffee. There were a few women singing, but it was clearly the setting of a concert. It's easy to mistake this for entertainment. Calvin comments that in truth, we know from experience that song has a great power and strength to move and inflame the hearts of men to invoke and praise God with a heart more vehement and ardent. One must always watch lest the song, that is the accompaniment, the music, be light and frivolous. Rather, it should have weight and majesty, as Augustine says. And thus, there is a great difference between the music that is made to entertain people at home and at the table and the psalms which are sung in church in the presence of God and his angels. So Paul Jones writes in Church Music, the quality of the music itself. The melody, the harmony, the rhythm, and the form plays a significant role in terms in both the interpretation of the text and the delivery of the truth. So as we close, remember, growing and maturing as a congregation means growing and maturing in our singing, in our worship, the way we understand it, the way we practice it, the way we respond to it. One thing we try to do as a church is to provide the bulletins by Friday so that you, with your families, can sing through the psalms and the hymns that we'll be singing on Sunday. So our children, for instance, would more recognize it. The tunes that we sing our psalms and hymns to, uh, you can find those tunes online. You can get familiar with them. We also sing a psalm of the month so that we can add more psalms uh, to our a repository of psalms that we know as a congregation that we grow in. Worship is not entertainment. It is the Spirit's workshop of discipleship where the gospel is set forth through the means of grace and we respond with love, wonder, and praise. A loud and joyful sing. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We know there is so much more that can be said about singing and praise and the music of the church. And we, we ask, Lord, that you give us wisdom as a church as we seek to honor and glorify you. We know, Lord, we are far from where we need to be. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen our praise, fuel our praise with your gospel, and may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us stand and sing together Psalm 98.